0: Anyways, good afternoon, good morning, or good evening to you all. Uh, thank you for being here for the final discussion of William Blake with the Liter- with the Quarantine Literature Group. Just some brief announcements. Um, as some of you may or may not know, uh, the admins and mods are working to start reorganizing the server, as announced uh, Monday. And so I'm not sure when we'll finalize things, but, um, in regards to our last meeting and some of the things we discussed in terms of, uh, organizing and all that, it looks like we are underway for that to be a reality. Um, let me see here. And then the final thing, um, as we decided previously, it looks like next Saturday session, we won't be reading a text, although you're advised to still prepare. Um, we'll be doing a roundtable discussion on the texts we've read up to this point, and so um, it might be worth going back to revisit Borges or Arto or what, whatever texts you really enjoyed and that um, you found meaningful and resonating, and to to consider the themes more, but also consider the contrasts and the, the comparisons with something like. Um, to use an easy example with something like poetry and sacred language in Borges as opposed to uh, the same in William Blake so we'll be looking forward to sharing that discussion with you for our round table next week Saturday at noon PDT the same time as today and so with that we'll get right into the marriage of heaven and hell for our final discussion And so i think we left off we were talking about the memorable fancy uh, which begins with prophets isaiah and ezekiel dined with me and i think we were talking about um how Blake has brought these two two prophets from the old testament together to dine with the narrator and the discussion of um there's a few things they're discussing but some of the central parts of that discussion being the use of writing, um, expansion on the theme of perception and its relationship to energy and um, reason, and their relationship with um, writing, perhaps even poetry, and their larger societies. And we were talking about, uh, I believe, the the way in which during the symposium um two prophets have come together to discuss their work or perhaps what inspired their work with the narrator as he's writing uh what will my well, as he's narrating a particularly powerful text and one that um could perhaps be a kind of prophecy and uh, as some of you may know William Blake also wrote pieces like America calling a prophecy. So uh, clearly the role of prophecy is important but for Blake's work as much as um, something like poetry is. But with that, I want to open up to you guys now and uh, go into our usual format of open floor discussion. Um, does anyone want to kick us off and tell us more about Uh, what they've reflected on regarding the marriage of heaven and hell, and um, if not in a general sense, perhaps uh, what their thoughts are on this memorable fancy. Hey, Alyosha. you are just in time. We were just jumping into the memorable fancy. Uh, The one beginning the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel dined with me. We were just recapping some of what we talked about last week, and um, uh, perhaps you'd like to kick us off with um, any thoughts or reflections you've had uh, on this passage since our last discussion.
1: you have to give me a minute, folks. <laughs> I'm just uh, coming in from something. I'll, I'll try and get the text up, and I can try and participate in a moment.
0: No problem. No problem. Anybody want to fill in for Alyosha while they get um, organized?
2: It's been a while since I read it, but uh, I remember that the distinction between, not the blacks, but what Blake argues about the distinction between the good and the evil. And the good was the passive, and the evil was all those uh, actions are coming from. And all the um, structures of the good, or like religion, Religious people were like um, arguing against the evil and putting, uh, putting them in a morally uh, worse state. The, um, Blake was arguing that he should connect them to in a way that they would support each other, not in a dialectical way, but they would actually derive from the same source. So he then go goes on to say that the to be called bad or evil was not something irrational and he um, placed them onto the body like where we see like for example conscience was in the human breast or deities were resting on the human breast and proportional hands on feet etc so we see that uh, I actually adore that it is not ab- abstract anymore and that uh, he talks about them um, in a way in a way that we can actually, understand them and uh, in the memorable fancy he talks about this poetic genius and i looked up what he was meaning about what he meant about the poetic genius and there is actually a text called all religions are one by blake and then there he explains what that poetic genius means and he says that the true method of knowledge is experiments and that the poetic genius is the true man um so I think that is something interesting and I will link that text into the chat now. Just find it. So I didn't read it. I don't know what he really talks about in there in depth.
0: Very nicely said. And yeah, that that's one of the earlier words where he starts really developing this um this idea of poetic genius. And I like what you mentioned too, where you start out um, talking about like um, kind of his response and critique of um, uh, of where religion is at, right? He starts out all Bibles or sacred codes have been the causes of the following errors. And then taking us right into this memorable fancy, um, what could be more appropriate than, dining with two of those authors and talking about um, in some sense their texts, but also talking about kind of um, in some ways what, what the inspiration for that text is, right? And as Begum points out, uh, what we're gonna find is, is it's an experience of uh, what Blake will call poetic genius. So with that, um, what and I like that you point out that this isn't exactly a dialectic. So um, this passage is sometimes compared with Plato's Symposium, where um, a series of people from um, gosh, I'm even trying to categorize them: uh, some poets, a doctor. And some other respectable people in society all give speeches um, regarding the concept of love. And then Socrates, the philosopher, will come uh, with the perhaps the most impacting speech and, and sort of reorganize everything. And in that sense, there's, there's a dialogue, like every Platonic dialogue, but there's also a sense of dialectic in the way he approaches it. But... Uh, As we're going to see here with Plato, uh, Plato with Blake, this isn't quite a Socratic dialectic. This is more like um, a conversation in in many ways. And so uh, what do you guys make of this conversation? What's kind of going on in here?
1: Sorry, we're on the section with Isaiah and Ezekiel, yeah? Yes, sir. I mean, I think we did mention a little bit last time, if I remember correctly, that um, he's sort of taking two seminal biblical prophets and reimagining and reinterpreting them as kind of, uh, I guess, these more grounded, somewhat cynical, but like honest um, truth seekers, which, uh, and I think that that first bit with Isaiah – where he's kind of explaining, it's not that I experienced this anthropomorphic God being, I, I experienced, that, he said, I discovered the infinite in everything. And as I was then persuaded and remain confirmed that the voice of honest indignation is the voice of God, I cared not for consequences but wrote. So it's, it's that what uh, Begum and you were saying about poetic genius being a kind of, yeah, a, an experience that spurs you that inspiration and feeling of creativity itself is the the infinite that is the divine or whatever, which is definitely a, a rereading of the of the biblical prophet. And then the Ezekiel he's kind of giving almost like a, a I guess a, a sociological rereading of why it was that the, the, the laws of the Jews ended up being you know followed by so many. Um, so yeah just that, that they're both I guess rereadings of famous and revered biblical prophets.
0: Yeah, the re engagement is quite interesting here, right? Because um, one way of looking at this is you could ask, it's almost like you have your, you read a difficult text like Isaiah or Ezekiel's books, and now you've got the author there and you could ask any question, right? And so the questions are uh, kind of interesting in that regard. The narrator doesn't ask what the texts mean, like Alyosha points out. The narrator asks, like, why did you write the text yeah, more so did you write the text because of uh because you had experienced god in this direct way or did you think that um if you had been more upfront about something um, different happening would you be rebuked and it's like Alyosha is kind of pointing out how is that different than how we we usually read these um these prophets or something like the bible or um a sacred text why what do you you guys make of him uh, the narrator starting with those questions
2: Uh, i think it is more about like the uh, uh, trying to understand what the divine character is like so what does feel like or is it something like a revelation Revelation, and if it is something like revelation how does it happen Like, how do you differentiate something that is material and something that is from another source how do you understand that you, your voice that you hear in your head is not your own but it's something that is coming from poetic genius so, um, you have to trust in your you have to have a trust in yourself that this is something else and uh, it is not my own voice but it is something divine and this is still even still happening in body like it is uh, it is not surreal it is in the world and it is in the materialistic world i understand and um it is not so analytical but it is kind of uh, poetic because why like um i remember um, remember the I don't know if this is the correct was there, but the bird of tragedy, uh, and there that like something has to be grounded. There is all this um, desire or like this energy, and it has to be grounded. And it is not in analytical sense, but it is not tragic sense. It is in poetry that it is grounded, and it is informing us, informing people. Um, it is not so. Um, um, like, synthetic. I don't know what the word is there, but um, it is, it invokes the senses, the poetry invokes the senses, and it is kind of erotic. And this is why erotic is not something bad, but it is something, it is a path that can uh, make us reach divine. Oh.
0: Yeah, I really like that you're connecting it with the beginning of the text too, and and the way that um we're seeing Blake develop these themes, like we talked about when we read the argument, that this is all going to kind of keep compounding throughout the text, and it, it's you it know it, it's, it's like we did with the proverbs. Sometimes you've got to look to. Sometimes when it's tough to interpret a piece of the Blake text, you've got to look elsewhere, and it'll start to click. But um, hopefully I can. All my thought you were talking about um sort of like poetry's relationship to the the energetic and the reasonable and i i like your insight that um like if poetry is um or the person is going to experience the the infinite or the divine in that um the use of reason is only going to go on so far as to sort of um to sort of segment it and allow it to be kind of put into words and in that, right, in order to sort of um, to corral energies for um, a sort of different use. And I, I think that's a particularly interesting way of thinking about language or even um, thinking about the rational, right? It's almost like um, there's a composer I like uh, named John Zorn. He's not the first person into this, but he'll take note cards, and he'll write melodies on the note cards, and he'll rearrange them. And he'll, it's called the file card pieces. And it's kind of like what we're seeing here, where um, there's this moment of inspiration, or this moment of like uh, perception of the infinite as the narrator, and Isaiah are talking about that leads to kind of this. Um, this outflow of of work and in this case it's um it's from the prophets and let's talk a little bit more about um why they wrote this down right so it's kind of interesting that they have this profound experience um what's the answer the prophets give for why they wrote this down And uh, what do you make of that? Or to say it differently, why does Isaiah go naked? And why does Ezekiel eat, dung, and lay on both of his sides? What's kind of going on there?
1: Do you have any background on the Diogenes reference that might be able to illuminate that?
0: I do. Um, Diogenes, the Grecian... Uh, you've probably heard some of these stories. He's um. He, he's a fairly famous philosopher in the sense that he's sometimes compared with a troll, um, which is sort of accurate. Uh, Diogenes is a cynic philosopher. And um, for those of you who don't know, the word cynic refers to the Dodd's life. So there was this Grecian school of thought that prioritized a more abject life relative to the more aristocratic Athenian life. And Diogenes is one of the um, sort of the archetypal Cynic philosophers. So you might have heard this story before. Um, Diogenes, uh, he didn't have a house. He lived in a bathtub. And so um He used to sit on his bathtub and sun himself and one day uh alexander the great king of macedonia came to visit diogenes and uh, alexander asked him or rather alexander said to him uh mr diogenes right now uh diogenes i've heard a lot about you i've heard that you're a very profound thinker and I've heard that you're very well liked and well respected. And so I've come so far as to talk with you. I'd like to offer you a boon. Anything you request, then I'll um, I'll give it to you. Just say the word. And so Diogenes says to Alexander the Great, uh, anything I request. And Alexander replies, yes, anything. And so Diogenes uh, replies back, I'd like it if you got out of my son. And so you can kind of see like this is already, a this is not quite the model of philosophy we typically think of today with like somebody like, um, uh, you know, like the distinguished professor. This is somebody in a bathtub telling the king of Macedonia to get lost. And so to dive into this illusion, um, there's another story about Diogenes where he I can't remember if he goes naked or if he wears a barrel, but he, I believe, well, either he goes naked or wears a barrel and lights a candle, and he goes searching throughout the streets of Greece in search of an honest man. So, um, right like that example of Diogenes and the cynical life or one that's um, more abject, one that's sort of like... Um, more directly connected with um, not just the kind of suffering but also like um, a different kind of aesthetic life in that and there's this comparison here between um, Diogenes and the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel who um, and this comes up a lot in like uh, different scriptures right Uh, the prophets go out in the wild and you, you might remember this a little bit from the argument, they go out into the wild and they subject themselves to all sorts of, like, um, abject uh, conditions, such as, um, as the narrator tells us, Ezekiel eating dung and laying on his right and left side until he's um, extremely uncomfortable, or Isaiah going naked and barefoot for three years. And so... Um, Having unpacked Diogenes a little bit more as their parallel, their philosophical parallel at that, uh, what do you guys make of this comparison and um, why is this important?
1: Well, I guess interestingly, when Ezekiel responds, he says, I did it in the desire of raising other men into a perception of the infinite. So there it's not a, you know a form of knowledge or a treatise or any of the actual prophecies or things he wrote that he's saying will raise other men into perception of the infinite. It's, you know, his actions and the kind of living this, whatever this spiritual life is that is supposed to be that kind of instruction. So maybe, you know, for both of them, it's a kind of, uh, I guess, just what you were saying, like a kind of experiential spiritual discipline that is about kind of actively cultivating the experience. I think he says at the end of this, is he honest to resist his genius or conscience only for the sake of present ease or gratification? So, you know, always pursuing that thread and not allowing it to be closed off. I think at the end of this section it says, for man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. You know, trying to always, and I think we did talk about that that phrase, the doors of perception as well, that's used in this section. Of like, always trying to keep those doors open and Relentlessly, sort of pursuing them, which may bring you outside of the logos or like written knowledge altogether, and just be. It might even lead to like a mendicant, wandering kind of life. That's what I'm reading in it.
2: so wonder if there is any contrast to like monks or like sec- the uh, like religious leaders do when they go into seclusion, like they isolate themselves from the world and in which they close themselves up in their minds almost like to reject all that is worldly it is like the opposite of it uh, there is like a wisdom in like accepting it all
1: yeah i heard you then
0: i'm sorry about that my my wi-fi has been on the fritz this week um Alyosha, i caught what you were saying uh bigum unfortunately when you began to speak my uh my wi-fi caught off could you um if i ask you to repeat yourself
2: Sure, so uh, I wondered if there was like any contrast between the monks who isolated themselves, the mountains, or etc., or like seclusion and rejecting all that is verbally. Because he goes on to say that this will come to pass by an improvement of sensual enjoyments, and um, there's like, you um, don't have to close up in our minds, the opposite of it and uh, have a wisdom in it too in my comments
0: yeah and it's interesting too right because this definitely parallels a kind of aesthetic life right yeah like you're saying the monks who go out into the wilderness or uh, the monks who get out of society and they keep very minimal ties right but um Uh, And Alyosha, I I think you read the passage. um, The particular point that I think is kind of um, illuminates a lot here is Ezekiel's answer in that very first clause, the desire of raising other men into a perception of the infinite. Who are um, these prophets going what, who are they subjecting themselves to this kind of cynical life for? Or to make it easier, um, what's different in that's, that piece I just wrote, uh, as opposed to, say, like uh, the monks getting out of the um, trying to sever ties and that, or um, other examples of aesthetic life?
1: I mean, I suppose it's kind of a, maybe an obvious point, but I, I suppose any form of genius or some so-called anything that's revelatory that connects to the infinite is not something that can happen as a solitary pursuit it inherently happens through others and through you know things that are outside of oneself and one has to seek those things in the world and nature as well as in other so-called men so i feel like there's something about the for anyone who truly i guess he's saying you know experiences goes through one of those kinds of experiences or feels that calling, it can never truly be uh, a solitary pursuit because that would just be another form of closing off and, I don't know, trying to like hoard revelation for oneself. That doesn't really make any sense. That's like a magic trick or something. So, you know, he repeatedly says it's for others. So there's, I guess there's a kind of, maybe for him, there's to have a taste of or an experience of that genius or that divine revelation inherently kind of uh it, what's the word not behooves it, it kind of uh you know it, it, there's yeah. like a, an ethical obligation to then bring try and bring that to others maybe in ways that they don't immediately recognize maybe they it takes some time because it, it seems so out of sync with like the way society works but like we've said in the past that kind of re- reflects Blake's own sense of what he was writing you know he had the whole prophecies series of of works as well. so yeah, that there's it's 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 always an instructional kind of thing, I guess, in a way, to have experienced that uh, revelation. It can never just be a a consumption or a consuming passive consumption experience
0: Yeah, I really like your connection with others. and um, specifically, what are they hoping others will do with these stats or specifically when when the, when Diogenes goes searching for an honest man when when these um, when these people subject themselves to this kind of um, these kind of abject conditions and, and there is this relationship with other people what are they hoping to accomplish? With the other people, why do they want to do it um, in a sort of more communal space?
2: Um, they talk about the doors of perception being cleansed, and in the there is no in the text that I sent where the title is "All Religions Are One." He talks about. Um, that man has no notion of moral fitness but from education. So these doors of perception are the education of the community. So even if we try to isolate them so ourselves from it, we were first for subject to it. So we have the, these doors of perception. And only through community we can cleanse them or like maybe have more of them to reach more perception or to reach the infinite to have more of them not to have walls but to have more open doors in a way so it cannot be done with uh, uh, with oneself we need others too because we were first subject to them and we first got their impressions on the world and now it is through the collective work that we can undo it
0: Yeah, I think that definitely comes through. But um, I want to make sure I, I want to make sure we pinpoint this. When Diogenes goes looking for an honest man while going naked, there's a lot of things we can pick out of that to say what's going on there. We could say that Diogenes is doing that for himself. We could say that Diogenes is doing that for the man or for the society. But I think Blake has a very subtle suggestion about something slightly different. And I think the key to that is where he says, um, the desire of raising other men into a perception of the inner infinite. So we're talking about um, Begum, you're absolutely right. There is this sense of like... Um, allowing others to to have these doors cleansed but i think what's kind of interesting here is like it's through this level of um it's through this level of um subjecting oneself through a sort of cynical life um in the old sense of the word that these um, these prophets try to make their work and make their lives that source of inspiration for other people. And I, I think that's important. And the reason I want to hone in on that is because um, it's not just the lifestyle, right? It's also the texts. And so when we're, we're talking about reading these texts and kind of, you know, why why read the poetry? Why read Blake? Or as Blake seems to be asking, right, right? Um, at least in some sense, why read the prophets and how do we kind of read them in a way that isn't um, reifying, to use um, a technical term, that doesn't sort of try to freeze everything and nail it down. Uh, It is definitely, I I think, communal. But I think it's also the sense of um, helping others find this inspiration and cleanse their senses, too.
1: Could I maybe suggest we read the printing section, because I th- actually think that kind of addresses this in a, in a lateral way?
0: We can read the printing section. It was not required. On... Are you up for that?
1: Sorry, I didn't realize that. Uh, it's just a suggestion, but I'm just looking. I find he's talking about the transmission of knowledge. And then the the section just after that, before the next memorable fancy, has a really interesting bit about uh, the the god, the prolific and the devouring. That I thought kind of related to some of what you were saying, but
0: yeah. And I hope I'm not coming off as um trying to make like trying to split hairs on that. Um, I, I think there's this really subtle point in here that's like. It's not just um, trying to trying to because it's like it's not like the text is the the experience of the divine and all that, right? It's not like um, you know these things are just going to um, these things are the th- are the end in themselves, right? It's not like the the book is the inspiration, but it's a way of trying to inspire an inspiration in the person. Um or in the community, like Begum was saying. I, I just trying to open that up a little bit more. Um what do you guys think? Do you want to hop into that printing house memorable fancy? Uh, okay before while well, people are um typing their answer, before we we move on to any memorable fancy, there's one more thing I wanted to hit here. Um and I think we've already uh, Begum, I think you've actually said quite a bit about it. Um, just to elaborate a little bit more on this last point. What do you guys make of this term poetic genius? What um, What's going on here in the text with uh, poetic genius? <laughs> it is a little tough, but um, Begum's already given us some good insight. And I think um, you know the, the divine revelatory, as Alyosha was talking. I think definitely plays into it. But, you know, specifically like where we see we of Israel taught that the poetic genius, as you now call it, was the first principle, and all the others merely derivative. What do you guys see happening um, with this concept?
2: I mean, there is a um, inclination that there's only one source at all, and one source only. That's it, but it encompasses the other deities or like uh, whatever we call them. Yeah, deities or gods as well. So um, maybe a long shot, but I read somewhere that genius comes from Jinn and Jinn is like. Uh, natural uh, being in like traditions and these genes are like they're not good but they, they are both like there are good ones and there are bad ones uh, I think it is interesting that he chose a genius because from genius we don't understand like morality from it there's like no morality when we say God we created with omnipotence or like Everything that is good is associated with it. When we say poetic genius, I mean what is what is in its nature is that like, you don't know it, and it may be because of that tradition where gin is not really good or bad, or like it has both. Like it definitely has both, but it is not at the same time either.
0: Yeah, I do think um, I think you're right about this. This does this term genius does sort of have an interesting contrast with something, with other concepts in religion. Um, and this, for example, like I, like deity, like the word God, and it does call into question, um, right, not just moral obligations, but like you said, like what what is morality in relation to poetic genius um let me see here uh ken is your mic working yeah we haven't heard from you yet um can you can you tell us about um can you expand on these thoughts about poetic genius and we're, right now, we're kind of placing it in um, conversation with religion.
3: Yeah, so there's this... I mean, I'm unfortunately going to be bringing in external sources. I'm kind of sitting in on this because I appreciate but not have started reading Blake yet. But I'm I prepared to, but maybe I can add to it. So there's this uh, concept of the soul sparks, centilia, right? And... Uh, And it corresponds to the other concept of divination um, of being inspired by something. And so, uh, so it's almost like a, a, there's a a spark that happens within you that inspires you and fascinates you in a direction that uh, you don't know that you're going in. It's just, it's a purely creative process. Um, it's like the ground before you is being created as you're walking forward. And so I think uh, this gets at to the core of the experience of creative genius. And, and in order to do this, there's like a certain amount of surrender to the experience that you have to do. You can't be trying to control what's going on. Um, but at the same time, you have to be present enough to be able to represent it in your own language as whatever this experience is happening has inspired you to create. And, um, and so, uh, I mean, that seems to get at the core of it. Uh, it, you are, it's. You are imbued with this. It's not necessarily something that uh, you can schematically construct and create the scenario for it to happen. Um, the The word surrender comes to mind again. You can't uh, force yourself to surrender. Uh, you can so you can try to create the scenario for it to happen. But at the same time. If you try to construct it, then you're going to be debased to your construct. You have to let it sort of flow, in a sense. Yeah.
0: You know, step me off, check me off, right? Um, yeah, yeah I, I like your points there, um, and. Th- so like um, if we take that and we kind of connect that with what Vegan was saying about this sort of religious um, connection with, um, with what Blake is talking about, right? So poetic genius, in some ways, like um, what is a genius, right? And like the Romans had this concept, similar like how the Greeks had a daemon, and in this way, it's sort of like a good test on this is like Yeats' Pura uh per Silencia mica De Lune. But uh, the daemon is something like this neutral spirit, not a demon, not an angel, but it's something that you kind of have, especially for the uh, some of the ancient Grecians, a conversation with. And in this sense, um, just like you guys are saying, there's this. Whether you compare it to a spark or um, something else, it's a. At least for for Blake here, it seems to be something that sort of uh, is part of that outflow that we're discussing that goes into something like a uh, prophetic text. Sorry about that, and so if we walk that out in terms of religion, right? Um, in these prophetic texts, there's just a couple of things I want to highlight before we move on to that stuff. Fantasy, fancy. Um, so there's definitely like a we could say there's a surrendering, like hermes uh, says, but at the same time, there's also a firm conviction. And so there's like, um, if there is a surrender, it seems to come with a sort of affirmation uh, such that if, to kind of build on that metaphor of surrendering, it's almost like you move with it, right? And you affirm it. And that way you you sort of channel this experience into something like a test, or since uh, the, the prophets more focus on their lives into your life. I um, also wanted to highlight. So Isaiah is very clear that they saw that Isaiah saw no God, right? This is already very different than what we usually think of with prophetic books, right? Um, Ezekiel expands on that to say the philosophy of the East taught the first principles of human perception. So just like we've been saying, we're right back into perception in the doors. For all you Jim Morrison fans. The philosophy of the East taught the first principles of human perception. Some nations held one principle for the origin, and some other. We of Israel taught that the poetic genius, as you now call it, was the first principle and all the others merely derivative, which was the cause of our despising the priests and philosophers of other countries, and prophesying that all gods would at last be proved in ours, and to be the tributaries of the poetic genius. Um, It it is tempting to say there's this one source, but what I think is interesting here is um, if if you focus on poetic genius or what what the character of Isaiah here is talking about in relation to God and Ezekiel um, in the same way, I think it's also important to compare that with what he remarks about the uh, Eastern traditions that they taught the plural uh, principles of perceptions. So I don't want to compare this to polytheism because I don't know if that's exactly the idea, but it's poly principality, right? A poly principle in a sense. There's many principles here. And in this sense, like the narrator is recognizing their place in a tradition that, that stems back to Judaism, and this focus on what they then called uh, a God or something like um, uh, Adonai, but also what Blake is now calling poetic genius, right? There's this, this recognition of a historical movement of this concept, relative to the other concepts that you can find in other um, teachings. I think that's really critical because especially in a monotheistic tradition like Christianity or Judaism, and and Ezekiel will point this out, it's very tempting to say that there is this one thing that um, all other things are derivative of. And Blake seems to say uh, through Ezekiel, actually, there's principles and there's perceptions. There's the doors of perception, like we're talking about. And in that way, it's a very expansive um, consideration of not only the senses, uh, but of inspiration, or inspirations, perhaps, and their relationship to um, this development of uh, of poetic genius, whether it's through, through a text, which um, seems to almost be secondary as opposed to the text that uh, the test of life, right, of the living of these things, and the uh, the interest in helping others achieve this level of inspiration for themselves.
1: I think yeah, I think it's a you're making a decent case for it. I mean, I think uh, it would be kind of tenuous to say just that he thinks there's multiple principles and perceptions, because at least through Ezekiel, he's saying there's still kind of a, a prime mover, which all these things are just versions of it. they're all derivative of it, or at least that's what Ezekiel taught. But um, if you don't mind, I think partially because this is our third session and we're going to end up having four if we don't keep moving. Uh, unless anyone has an objection, I just I just wanted to read out really quick the second half of this fancy because I think it's really maybe it'll be helpful for us to to think about. Uh, in the section about the printing house in hell, he does this whole bit about the, the form of knowledge and how it's passed from generation to generation. I think that you, you can skip that. But the second half, I think, is really interesting because um, he says, I'm just going to read it quickly. He says, the giants who formed this world into its central existence and now seem to live in it in chains are in truth the causes of its life and the sources of all activity. But the chains are the cunning of weak and tame minds which have power to resist energy, according to the proverb. The weak in courage is strong and cunning. Thus, one portion of being is the prolific, the other the devouring. To the devourer, it seems as if the producer was in his change, but it is not so. He only takes portions of existence and fancies that the whole. But the prolific would cease to be prolific unless the devourer, as a sea, received the excess of his delights. Some will say, is not God alone the prolific? I answer, God only acts and is, and existing beings are men. These two classes of men are always upon earth, and they should be enemies. Whoever tries to reconcile them seeks to destroy existence. Religion is an endeavor to reconcile the two. Note, Jesus Christ did not wish to unite but to separate them, as in the parable of sheep and goats. And he says, I came not to send peace but a sword. Messiah or Satan or tempter was formerly thought to be one of the antediluvians who are our energies. Anyway, there's a, there's some diversions there, but I thought that the particularly relevant parts are you know, if we're thinking about Poetic genius, where does it come from and what purpose does it serve? We've talked about, you know, Blake looking at uh, the senses and sensual experience being a form of experiencing the sublime. You know, there being no separation between body and soul. And what is the role of religion in these things? I think it's really telling that he specifically says we need to have the there's a form of being that produces. Obviously, we, you know, I'm always connecting it to our main text. This, this sounds very, very body without organs to me. <laughs> but there's, there's a part of being that produces, but it can't just produce endlessly. There has to be a way that it is then processed. Um, and he's saying, these, these, but these things can't be, you know, collapsed into one thing, and religion actually tries to do that. And it ends up leading to all kinds of mistakes and errors and suppressions and, you know, guilt and shame around the body and its urges and desires and feelings. When he's saying, actually, what Jesus originally was trying to do, according to him, was not to unite these things. So it, it wasn't to engage in what he's calling religion, it's to engage in something else. And I, I really like this bit where he says... The prolific would cease to be the prolific unless the devourer as a sea received the excess of his delights. So that might kind of go back to answer your question as well about what is the role of others, you know, for if there's the cynic or the Diogenes, the prophet, whoever it is doing these things in the wilderness, but it's supposed to be for others. You know, there's, there's a sense in which there's always an excess to... To desire and to the prolific which creates and it can't just go into a vacuum you know the the devourer as a sea has to receive the excess of his delights and whatever that is whether that's I think you could read it as two parts of the artist of the creator the two two parts of the prophet, or actually in society, as he says, there's two classes of men. You know, that you can't, there has to be, something has to be done with the excess of inspiration because it, it's what it, it's a productive force. It's not just a contemplative idea. It, it creates things. It puts thing newness into the world, and something has to be done with that newness, and that can only happen, you know, sort of through others. So I don't know how, what other people think, but I thought this little passage is actually super... It's really, really interesting, and and I think it connects a lot of these ideas together.
0: Yeah, I think you have a very interesting interpretation there. And I I think you're right to say that, um, to focus on, um, one of the the passages you focused on is, uh, I think you said, what he's calling religion is, uh, religion is an endeavor to reconcile the two. And so it's tempting, right, since we're reading the marriage of heaven and hell, to think about Blake trying to marry heaven and hell in this text. But something different might be going on here, where instead of a reconciliation, right, we've got the, the voice of the devil. Again, we've got the accuser or the Messiah, tempting or, say, or te- uh, Satan or tempter. That's a, an antediluvian or something primordial that is one of our energies, right? And this is kind of what I was uh, referring to earlier, where if there are these, if it's not just poetic genius, if there are principles that exist sort of horizontally, in that same way, I think um, the accuser is very much one of them.
3: And that's the key, right? That they exist horizontally. Um, And this ties in with the whole uh, you need opposition for energy. And whenever you try to force it all under one head or like one hierarchy um, you end up losing this horizontal aspect
4: Yeah.
3: yeah just to give a brief
0: refresher man has no body distinct from his soul for that called body is a portion of soul discerned by the five senses the chief inlets of soul in this age so there is this relationship between the body and soul that's very much intimately connected in that um, and then he will go on to say energy is the only life and is from the body and reason is the bound or outward circumference of energy finally energy is eternal delight
2: it reminds me of Dalos as well where uh, the war it seems as if the producer was in his chains Probably- of ourselves as the subjects of our own productions where this energy uncontrollable that moves within us and then we are formed and we are the chains actually, what we consider ourselves are the chains and then say that this is the source but it is not and um, yeah the, I agree that like doesn't want to marry this to heaven and hell because marrying Reminds me of subordination of one to the other, and or maybe like uh, defining one with the other, other one's uh, vocabulary, like because um, they should be separate entities, like yes, horizontal is the word, word maybe, and they should be separate entities, they could like live one by all, uh, side by side, but um, they don't have to like composing
0: to each other in a sense. Oh. Yeah, it's interesting how he's doing this, right? Because there are relationships. Um, and I think that's part of the power of this text because it does challenge you to think about this a little bit differently. Um, but remember, right, contraries are where we find progress and we move through contraries. Not so much back and forth, but perhaps... Um, through different experiences, whether it's prolific or devouring, uh, whether it's subjecting yourself to um, abject conditions, or through the inspiration before that or after it, or through the receiving of such an inspiration, right? Is this movement involved in these different um, sort of uh, almost think of the contraries as gates in this way that you're just constantly (laughs) almost constantly in line through. Yeah, if if there is any sense of, like, I think the word marriage might be a a little too early to start fully opening it up, but I do think um, you're right that there's this way these two things, these contraries, exist in relation to one another that isn't about subjecting one to the other, the other to the one, like you're saying. But rather, it's almost like it's almost an appreciation of those differences. And kind of like Alyosha was saying, and Hermes, you use this word, too, this process that um, is in relation to it, this um, sensual perception of it all.
2: What I understood from Blake so far is that um, there's belief in his system, and but not religion. So belief is like, oh, yes, there's this poetic genius, and where the energies comes from. But religion is something as as it it talks about how you should live your life, or like what you should do with your body, and what body is according to religion and it sets out rules and the doors of perception are coming from the religion so I wonder if there is like any distinction in Blake that there is belief but there's also religion that, um, that comes from belief which is unnecessary because it tries to reconcile the two it tries to say that these thoughts about how the world is created or how the things are should would um, result in a morality where you should apply these into your life, and I wonder if Blake argues that yes, there are these principles, but do they say anything in themselves, or are they just beautiful? I mean, they can be beautiful, but is beautiful meaning means that they are good, or like that we should apply them in a sense that religion says us to do?
0: Yeah, it's definitely a, a challenge, right? It's a challenge to, it's definitely, it challenges us to reconsider, or I would say re-engage our morality, re-engage religion, right? Or, you know, uh, if, you're, if the word religion is, um, carries a lot of baggage um, for very good reasons, but uh, to re-engage, if, if not so much religion, right, what he's calling poetic genius or this relationship of body and soul, uh, this relationship with your senses, uh, this relationship with uh, the way your life, to me, it's like you're almost thinking about your life as a test and the way that um, a test serves for Blake in some ways to help, I think, to be something to help access this level or to to find inspiration in, but not to, um, as he's going to say later, not to just simply rearrange the text for yourself, but to actually create something um, through yourself with it. And so I think in terms of morality and faith and and that, I think that's still applicable because uh, the word poetry in its old Greek sense did refer to something like creation or fashioning so like if if you've been on soundcloud uh we've been calling this creating a developing a poetry for a living right you're you're fashioning a morality fashioning um fashioning your life fashioning your ideas your beliefs in that and uh this is not to make blake out into a relativist um but he definitely recognizes that it's not for one or the other to bind um, people, right? Even the devouring don't really, don't truly bind the, the prolific.
3: Uh,
0: because we're coming up on the hour mark, we actually passed it. Um, does anyone have any final comments on this fancy? Okay. Um. I don't know if we have the time to read this next one. So I think better just to do a more general discussion of religio. Oh, that's interesting, Hermes. He writes that um, religio is a c- careful consideration, and uh, we, he warns us to be careful not to conflate religion with uh, dogma in the sort of reifying sense of that word. Uh, that said, so now we're going to discuss um, Hope over, nice. Uh, we're going to discuss the memorable fancy regarding the angel and um, the narrator, and this this sort of um, I don't want to call it a contest per se, but this uh, experience they share with one another. And so, what do you guys? Um, what did you make of this experience? Did anything jump out to you? Okay. Um, if anyone's typing, we'll get to your comments after you type them. So let's just jump into it then. So this is a contest, I shouldn't say contest. This is a discussion about what uh, the narrator is going to point out, the way we impose our metaphysics on each other. And beyond that, in some sense, right, the way that... Um, We might not experience that imposition, but at the same time, what it might be like to experience such a thing. So um, let me see here. So the angel takes the narrator through the sound, the stable church, into the mill. If perceive a void, and that void slowly turns into... Um. You see here. Slowly turns into an infinite abyss, as the narrator and the angel suspend themselves from a tree root above, and the angel in a fungus, and from there, a series of red and white spiders emerge, um, as well as, um, in a different sense, devils and powers of the hot, uh, of the air, springing from corruption. And so the narrator asks right which of these is my lot and he finds out the spiders are his lot and then leviathan charges toward them and the angel retreats and as soon as the angel retreats this entire scene changes and um, the narrator is treated to a harpist who sings the man who never alters his opinion is like standing water and breeds reptiles of the mind. So I've, I've just briefly kind of moved through that. But what did you guys make of the angels, um, of the angel showing the narrator their eternal lot?
1: I think it was interesting because it's sort of like a typical apocalyptic sort of prophecy that you get in, in, in the Bible, sort of. And it seems to be implying, you know, the angel is pitying. He says, you're a pitiable, foolish young man. And the whole thing is all about the horrible things that are going to happen to him, this bleak abyss. And then ultimately he ends up escaping and ends up on a bank beside a river listening to a, a harper singing on their harp. And... The angel's like, how did you escape? What what, how, what happened? Um And I think it's telling that the the, the the song that the Harper's singing, the theme was, the man who never alters his opinion is like standing water and breeds reptiles of the mind. So that I feel like, I know there's probably elements I'm missing here, but I feel like for the narrator, everything the angel is showing him, and, and he kind of gets into this below, is nothing new it's just the same old it's you know a bunch of images of that are supposed to scare you um because they're negative and they're about they're going to harm you and, and all that but he then tries to show back to the angel what his fate is and you know he ends up showing him both the swedenborg which is like the author we mentioned in previous uh you know, Sessions, who he's often engaging with and critiquing throughout this piece and all the volumes that are just sort of sitting there. In the, I think he says this in this space, if space it may be called, but then he kind of shows him this church and I'm just sort of rescanning this here. Um, you know, he, he, there's all these monkeys and baboons inside and they're all grinning at each other, but then they grow, sometimes they grow numerous and the weak are caught by the strong and there's all these things happening in here, but none of it looks like religion you know so i I feel like he's kind of mocking the angel's perception again of, of religion um and i think he even calls it what does he say at the end the angel says thy fantasy is imposed upon me and thou oughtest to be ashamed and he says we impose on one another and it is but lost time to converse with you whose works are only analytics so there's that i mean i think he's pretty firmly saying there that whole framework that you're trying to put on me comes from that analytical. Pseudo rational mindset about you know f- sin and punishment consequence, and I'm sort of beyond that. That's that's what I'm taking from it.
0: Yeah, I like that you. The theme I thought was particularly interesting with the Harper sings, because that seems to refer to one of the proverbs of hell. Expect poison from standing water in the same way if i can find it the man who ever n- never alters opinion is like standing water right you can inspect poison from the person whose opinion is unalterable and right because they're not writing anything new they're rearranging uh, in the same way right um uh, i'll wait for that but uh in the same way the person who doesn't alter their opinion breeds poison once again like still water this lack of movement this um, you know that sense water isn't nourishing anymore it's it's um toxic well i should use that word. it's venomous because toxic has too much contemporary baggage um let me see here Okay, so we talked about the way that this is like a typical sort of like um, denunciation of somebody, right? Um, and a way of talking about their soul going into a void and the infernal abyss that they're supposed to be afraid of. Um, to move into the, the narrator's um, showcase. And Alyosha's has already begun unpacking this for us what do you guys make of what the narrator imposes on the angel okay let's try and hone in on it then um so the monkeys the baboons these apes that um are either cannibalistic or auto cannibalistic What's happening here, Hermes? We haven't heard from you in a while. Uh, what do you think?
3: I would need you to read it off again. I'm sorry.
0: The uh, the monkeys, the baboons that uh, are either cannibalistic or auto cannibalistic, meaning they uh, eat themselves. What's um. What's the narrator talking about there?
3: I'm not quite sure. I feel like if I were to give an interpretation, it would be... Uh, I don't know. Uh, it would be fraught with, like, moralistic things. So... Um, You could say that they, uh, they're they stuck to the confines of, so they, they create something, they fecundate, but they also eat that. It's not necessarily something new.
0: Not something new and it's not like the devouring and the prolific, right? They're devouring each other they're all devourers devouring each other in some sense if not themselves.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point. It's a different kind of because you would think in his logic there's a kind of gluttony and excess that is a positive thing, but this is a kind of like you're saying self-cannibalizing instinct, you know, the the inward-looking instinct of these kind of established religions that he's criticizing, which isn't about Endlessly, you know, creating new things and pursuing them, but ultimately destroying oneself in the process and kind of losing oneself. And I love that at the end there. I I skipped over it when I read it, but he's saying that he he brought the skeleton of a body, which in the mill was Aristotle's Analytics. So he there. I mean, he's kind of that's like a foundational text for a lot of the medieval like Christian theologians as well, or just Aristotle in general. You know, like Aquinas and stuff. So it's it's an interesting jab there but I think just below he also mentions monkeys again and he says um, a man carried about a monkey carried a monkey about for a show and because he was a little wiser than the monkey grew vain and conceived himself as much wiser than the seven men um, and so he goes on he compares that to Swedenborg and uh, you know there's a few other things there but I guess it's interesting that the church is filled with monkeys there's like a small hierarchy there there's the people maybe you know the angel themselves who's slightly better than the monkey but he's kind of saying look you're not that you're not that much better this is your congregation here there's a bunch of self cannibalizing sort of clueless people I guess
3: so representations are hollow without some sort of sensuous core to them um Schopenhauer takes the stance that uh, whenever he says perceive, he doesn't quite mean uh, like closed off perception. But he says um, to perceive is less than to conceive Um, that uh, immediate sensuous experience of one's own inner being is is a uh, complete thing. Um, whereas, uh, concepts are just representations of representations. And so Sorry. I think where the, where, how this ties into what's going on here is that people have created hollow conceptions, uh, that sort of just cannibalize each other.
0: Yeah. I think you're both really on to it. And so, like, Aristotle's analytics, right? He brings a text that is all about how to systematize, organize, and how to understand and arrive at some basic answer of what a text is, right? So, like, uh, even though he uses the analytics here, which is like uh, the organum, organum, the the Greek text. Anyways, there's also the poetics which Aristotle wrote to explain tragedy and epic poetry. And just what I want to highlight here is, um, and I've heard this start to come up in our Deleuze and Guadagnoe sessions. Uh, One way, so like some people will say like, yeah, right, Greek tragedy is just a means of, um, was a means for the society to showcase um, some great sin, some hamartia, although my Greek is no good, and to remind the, the people that this was so problematic, they had to go through this uh, this grief with the uh, the character, have a re- experience the reversal, the anagnosis and arrive at a catharsis where they, they purge themselves of these these pent up emotions and you might even say temptations. And like Aristotle's argument is really good the system works, you can definitely apply it, Um, I once did with Dorian Gray. So it all works in that. But that level can also prevent you from what we saw with the prophets, where there's something about engaging with these texts in a living way, and also with a way of living. But also, I think, with Interpreting them more head on and not just relying on a system to tell you what they mean, but to um, engage with them at a different level. Something that he uses Swedenborg to explain, whereas to say, the analytics and what Swedenborg dig is uh, it's not just that it's nothing new, it's that all they, they're doing is rearranging these parts. And so like, this isn't John Zorn writing these new melodies on these cards and rearranging them. This is somebody taking John Zorn's cards already written out and rearranging what's already been done, right? This isn't the prolific. This isn't a poetic genius. This is um, kind of turning that off in a way, right? And so if we, if we back this out and compare the two fantasies or the two... Um, the two eternal lots which aren't quite a damnation on one hand the narrator seems to be subject to the the potential eternal lot of um, being trapped in an infernal abyss having been sucked into a void and caught with spiders and like there's a level of creating that and everything that the, uh, the angel seems to kind of do. But when the angel leaves, we see that all disappear. And one thing we can take from that is like Alyosha said, the angel gave us an already crafted um, idea, something that's, um, I wanna point out, this is before Marx, like to call it reified is almost, um, it's not quite the mark. But it's already sort of hackneyed, and not only is it hackneyed, but it doesn't speak to what the narrator is actually experiencing or doing. It doesn't speak to their perceptions and their their experiences. In the same way, in contrast with the the narrator's take on the angel's lot, their eternal lot is to constantly be, uh, the angel's eternal lot is to constantly be Consuming uh, what other monkeys came up with, right? To keep rearranging what's already been done and trying to consume it without any prolific, right? So you can see this kind of absence in that life. It does chastise Swedenborg for not consorting with Dellas, right? Exactly, right? Is it's a whole missed perspective. So right, the problem isn't that these two uh, characters are having this conversation and imposing metaphysics on one another, Uh, the problem is in many ways when they can have this conversation because something like the angels' um, suspicion that um, this is all going to end in uh, infernal spiders prevents us from having this kind of dialogue and moving through the contraries as we've talked about and, and engaging you're prolific, whether you're, prolif- whether, you're um, whether something is prolific or devouring having those two things engage like Begum said without being subsumed by one another. But I'll open up to you guys do you have any thoughts on what I just said or thoughts on this fancy before we move into um, what may be our final Blake uh, fancy and, and peace for a little while? Um, I see a lot in the chat. Do you guys want to uh, share that or do you want to um, uh, move into that section?
1: I think I was just reiterating stuff that kind of we've all already said that the, the angels, I think he's. it's interesting that he's kind of tricking the angel in a sense and showing, showing up the angel and I think it connects to his saying that Swedenborg's mistakes, you know, it's a recapitulation of superficial opinions, he says. And he conversed with angels who are all religious and conversed not with devils who hate religion, for he was incapable through his conceited notions. Like there's there's something about, I was joking in the chat that, that the angels are like the goody two shoes of the universe and they have a very linear and narrow understanding of things. And they're not willing to upset connections and understandings in the way that the devils are and so to only consult with the angels is like you're going to always retread the same ground as you've said and you know just that that yeah just sort of all the stuff of that the devils represent that creative and open-ended force that i think he's more concerned with um yeah
0: yeah i think that's very well put And it kind of takes us back to that proverb of hell. Um, If the fool fool were to persist in their folly, they would become wise, right? Kind of like you're talking about um, and in connection with that proverb, we might say what the narrator accomplishes here is trying to give, um, instead of receiving a condemnation or a damnation from the angel, the narrator instead might provide an inspiration for the angel. And if there's no other thoughts, we'll move into this final fancy, fortunately a very short one, um, regarding the conversation, of course, between a a devil and an angel. So what were your thoughts on this fancy? That many thoughts. (laughs) Okay. Um, Do you guys think we have the time? Can try to speed read this if you guys like. Got about a half hour left. Okay, I'll read it real quickly then. Once I saw a devil in a flame of fire who arose before an angel that sat on a cloud and the devil uttered these words. The worship of God is honoring his gifts in other men, each according to his genius and loving the greatest men best. Those who envy or calumniate great men hate God for there is no other God. The angel hearing this become became almost blue, but mastering himself, he grew yellow and at last white "'and smiling, and then replied, "'Thou idolater, is not God one? "'And is not he invisible in Jesus Christ? "'And has not Jesus Christ give his sanction "'to the law of ten commandments? "'And are not all other men fools, sinners, and nothings?' "'The devil answered, "'Bray a fool in a mortar with wheat, "'yet shall not his folly be beaten out of him?' If Jesus Christ is the greatest man, you ought to love him in the greatest degree. Now hear how he has given his sanction to the law of Ten Commandments. Did he not mock at the Sabbath, and so mock the Sabbath's God? Murder those who were murdered because of him? Turn away the law from women taken in adultery? Steal the label of others to support him? Bear false witness when he omitted making a defense before Pilate? Covet when he prayed for his disciples, and when he bid them shake off the dust of their feet against such as refused to lodge them? I tell you, no virtue can exist without breaking these Ten Commandments. Jesus was all virtue and acted from impulse, not from rules. When he had so spoken, I beheld the angel who stretched out his arms embracing the flame of fire, and he was consumed and arose as Elijah. Note, the angel who has now become a devil is my particular friend. We often read the Bible together in its infernal or diabolical sense, which the world shall have if they behave well. I have also the Bible of hell, which the world shall have whether they will or no. One law for the line in Ox is oppression. What do you guys make of this?
1: I think I love this man.
0: He is quite brilliant, right? This way he he's working with perspectives is really um, quite ingenious. They're not there. We haven't heard from you um, this session. Uh, Would you like to give us some thoughts? Hi. No, I haven't been able to catch up with the reading, but I'm trying to slowly as you guys discuss. Ah, no problem. Well, feel free to jump in uh, whenever you whenever you wish. So let's walk this out then. You know, when I think back to like, my reading in the Bible, I have a hard time recalling uh, devils and angels even talking with one another. It's really interesting to see this dialogue. But anyways, so what is this devil saying about the worship of God?
1: Well, the angel says something that I think is really common to, at least most versions of mainstream Christianity, where Jesus is the perfection, you know, he's he's a perfect being, and all other men are fools, sinners, and nothings. And there's a kind of separation there between this God-man, who who is the perfection of, of existence, basically, and everyone else who's descended from, basically, the fall from Adam, and you know, they, they need the expiation of their sins to happen from this God-man sacrifice, all that stuff. And in the devil's version, he's saying, well, yeah, you should love the greatest of men, but it's not that they're separate. I, I, at least my reading, what I'm getting from it is that it's not that they're like a separate being from the rest of us. They're just, they've just kind of got the greatest gifts of genius and can... You know, uh, I guess tap into that poetic genius more than the rest of us. But what they want isn't um, like mm-hmm. blind obedience or you know this the law of ten commandments. But as you said, Jesus was all virtue and acted from impulse, not from rules. That he, his whole ministry was about breaking with what was, and changing up the you know the, their under, people's understanding of of the Tanakh and of. The, the Torah's laws and stuff like that, and I really like the bit about the there's the diabolical reading of the Bible, which maybe the world shall have if they behave well. Maybe that's too explosive. But the Bible of hell, the world is going to have whether they like it or not. And I get the sense that some of what Blake is writing, I think it, in a wry sense, is kind of that Bible of hell. He's giving us the the proverbs and the things direct, you know, the world needs this and it's going to see this, whether they like it or not. Mystical readings and rereadings of the Bible from a diabolical angle, yeah, you'll get that eventually if you you behave well. But that's not the most important thing. The important thing is that you get, you know, hell's version, which I thought is really interesting.
0: Yeah, and we get Hell's version, right? So, like, it's, I think in the, and you guys have probably figured this out already, but, right, like, this idea of heaven and hell is already starting to fade away completely as we've, um, at least as, as I learned in going to Catholic school, but um, as we're probably used to it, right? And, like, kind of like Alyosha is saying, that model, and and has alluded to this too that model works on um yeah thank you thank you I was just um i was actually just talking about it with some people we went went through it uh but we survived catholic school anyways yeah and it's it's an interesting thing right because catholic school does unfortunately turn out um a lot of people who really come to hate um any idea of, of uh, if not theism, divinity, just based on the, the experience. And I think that's part of what Blake is getting at, right? Like you could read him in a Nietzschean fashion say, like, he's preventing Ressantamot by um, not allowing subjugation. But anyways, it kind of follows, right? Like you were saying, if you're going to make Jesus Christ the perfect man, uh, because he can do no wrong then we're never going to live up to that, right? But if Jesus is a great man, perhaps the greatest man for a person, if you want to help Blake with his pronouns, um, if Jesus is the greatest person because they developed this poetic genius, because through their impulse they created their virtues and fashioned them into existence, and in fashioning them, Produced, you know, for others to devour, but also created something original, right? In some ways, this is kind of like uh, I think Sartre and Heidegger, what they're after is, you know, it's not so much authenticity per se. It's um, it's just the sort of originality of life, right? That you're not just reorganizing uh, the same trite ideas that um, you, you're creating something you're living in an original sense as opposed to um, you know like uh, the easy way to say this is so you're not just going back to like well mommy and daddy told me that I've got to do all this and so I'll do it and that'll be the good life right this is um this is a very different perspective on that 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 as such, as being so radically different, I think um, it's no stretch to use that word, being so radically different could be labeled hellish. But as we've seen, that's not quite the case, right? The With the Messiah and the accuser being two different names, two different ways of telling the story of the same uh, beings, right? The same antediluvian energy. So uh, with that, what makes Jesus, like, let's walk this out just a little bit more. What does Jesus do here that develops a virtue, right? Like, what does it mean to live these impulses?
3: I mean, it's precisely not to be that monkey person who uh, regurgitates conceptions, right? Yeah, Uh, you end up uh, transgressing the law by acting on immediately sensible or uh, immediately intuitive sensations. Like you're just you're right on the uh on the cord. And so before we were talking about relig- religio, there's two kind of interpretations that come from it. One's Cicero, which is the one that I prefer. And then the other is like Augustine. And Augustine maintains the linking back interpretation of religio. Um and Cicero's talking about a like a careful consideration of that immediately sensuous occurrence, um, and so the, the thing about Christ being uh, this pure thing, uh, this absolute thing, is that if you uh, if you assume that Christ is absolute and beyond all human experience. Uh, I mean, Jung would say, Jung says, uh, if I assume that Christ is absolute and beyond all experience, he leaves me cold. I do not affect him, nor does he affect me. But if I know that he is a powerful impulse of my soul, at once I must concern myself with him, and then he can become important. So it's, and, and this is the difference between dogma and you actually having an experience yourself with with divine or the infinite, is that uh, if you just sort of consume these conceptions that are hollow, uh, you're just you're barking things that you have never actually experienced, and so it, it, truly you know nothing of them. Whereas the other side is that you can experience these things directly. But then you have churches and religious convention that puts all sorts of barriers between the person and the divine. Yeah,
0: I think that's very well said. Like you're saying, the barriers between the person and the divine, right? Like. It's very much like the chink in the cavern you look at, right? The, the cave walls that the dragons have to clear or the inside of the cave, that is. Um, they have to open it up and the the eagles have to make it infinite with their win- of wings. Hey, <laughs> I beat you to it. Um, that's some very interesting Deleuze connections you guys are making too. But yeah, I, I think you're right. Like it's this idea that when when the commandments become meaningless is when you, you know, uh, when you're just um, dealing with them at this level of like, um, in some ways an automatic level, but um, in this way where they're no longer interpretable, they're no longer applicable and they're no longer uh, interpretable, right? You guys have ever read the story of the adultering woman right it's like these guys bring this woman to jesus and then they say to him we, we caught her uh committing adultery uh we're ready to stone her and jesus is like uh, why like well she broke the commandment you know so we got to stone her that's what it says and he sits down and he starts drawing in the sand and Kind of ignores them and after a while they're like hey so we're gonna stone her right and he says right like um that famous line like he who is without sin cast the first stone right so in the face of that that commandment he says something very profound that doesn't seem in a lot of ways to really violate um anything moral to me Right, like it's kind of like Alyosha was saying earlier. If if the idea of the commandments is to measure your imperfectibility and punish you for it, uh, it's not very useful, right? And that's not the way that um, Jesus does this stuff, right? His impulse is different, and he can have the impulse.
1: I think it's an interesting way of talking about Jesus as a prophet as well, because. You know, if you follow the logic of what Blake is trying to represent, we should, you know, I think the average, um, let me put this in a way that's not horribly offensive, but um, I mean, all of us have probably met um, very religious people whose experience of their religion is sort of primarily fear-based. And uh, in my own religious community and, and others, when you talk about the sort of founding so-called father of that sect, at least in the Abrahamic ones that I'm familiar with, there's a lot of like fear when they talk about this person, or they talk, you know, you're not supposed to. Who who could ever presume to be like Jesus or Muhammad or anyone? You know, like how how dare you presume that you are any you're you're an ant compared to them? But I, I I like that in in the way he's kind of almost trivializing. I don't mean in a negative sense, but he's you know he's trying to show that these are actions that you know, we all should be capable of, and that all that Jesus did was recognize, in in his version of events, is recognize that this is what needed to be done and did it. But, you know, all of us are capable of that, and therefore, if, you know, I don't know if you could say, I'm not educated enough to say if Blake would even... Call himself a Christian, but from this sort of pseudo-Christian perspective, that you know, a pious act isn't to like obey Jesus' commands. It would be to try and live the way Jesus did. And I do think there are there's lots of kind of inspirational liberation theology versions of Christianity that that do try and follow that you know that line of thinking of it's not about uh, the the commandments, but it's about living in the way that this person lived and any one of us could sort of aspire to be of that, cut from that cloth or be of that number, um, you know, and, and I think there's a lot in mystical Christian traditions as well of like what the saints did, what Joan of Arc did, what any of these people did that is supposed to be kind of uh, channeling. Uh, what, do, what do they call that? The monks call the imitatio Christi, that kind of thing of like, that, that is, the, that is the real goal of that spiritual practice. Anyway, so that's a little bit of a diversion, but I just thought that was interesting.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. If anything, right, like you could compare the narrator in this text with Jesus, right? In a lot of ways, right, the diabolical version of the Bible, the diabolical interpretation, the Bible of hell that we may, um, that we have no choice but to get, and the diabolical interpretation we'll get if we behave well, right? Like in a very similar way to, to, to Jesus, right, like you might, goes so far as to say what makes him so praiseworthy and the devils kind of alluding to this is that uh, Jesus can live that original um, that original life full of an original interpretation and it's not even that like crazy right like he just says like why do you want a stone here like right like what he says later on is really profound but he just draws in the sand it's not even like you know <laughs> it's not' anything spectacular it's not Alfred Hitchcock you know that's a different way of thinking about part of genius in some sense too um, but very much to what you're saying right um, and so much so that like when it comes to things like morality and virtue um, and character even you're right like Kant would say the categorical imperative has you should act as the moral legislator for the world but like I think what Blake is kind of saying is like, it's one thing to develop a morality that you have to live by and to try and do that, you know, at a young age before you even go out into the world and persist in your folly. And maybe that's the trouble is that you try to stop your folly before you persist in some ways. But, um, instead of doing that, right. He suggests, um, something a little bit different pointing out one law for the odds and line is oppression such that like the putting one law above all um, above all people regardless of their context right is to try to subjugate them and in some ways this you could see this is the problem with this engagement with the bible with any sacred code or in a less um less high statesman or any text, right? If you just know something like Sophocles through Aristotle's *Poetics*, have you read Sophocles? Did you did you find the inspiration that Sophocles is kind of showing us, right? And I use that example because we're reading Antioedipus. But in the same way with this text, right? It's not a reorganization of um, what's already been said. But with that... Um, Sarah, Sam, do you want to jump in? I noticed you have some um, uh, some interesting things in the chat.
2: I think it is interesting that Blake previously highlighted that um, they don't hear the God necessarily, but they see the infinite in in the objects and. Because uh, like in Muhammad too, like when the revelations came to him, it, 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 he, he wasn't like in a cave. He must have like felt like a madman in, in a way. And we need to understand that when they're written, they seem all like glorious. When, but when they were experiencing that, it was not that divine. It was um, it had ups and downs of it. And yeah, the experience is different from the text and... We should drive inspiration from it, but we should act on it. And the virtue is so good if we don't act on it and try to like uh, experience with it in a good way or a bad way. Even though if you have, if we have to like break some laws in order to reach virtue in the example of Jesus.
4: Hmm. You, is this any better now? Can you hear me?
0: Yes. Can, can anyone hear Sarah Sam?
4: Thank you. Um, I, I guess my question was just um, in that third paragraph. I'm sorry I joined a bit late today, but um, where he's making these contradictions of, but I don't have a Christian background and I didn't go to Catholic school, so I didn't come out the other end. Of like, the disbelief, but the, this part where it's like if Jesus Christ is the greatest man, you ought to love it. so um so did he not mock the Sabbath and so mock the Sabbath's God, murder those who were murdered because of him? Like is that is that just talking about how Jesus has no virtue and acts on impulse or is there like a distinction What existed in the old Bible, and what is considered virtue and following rule? Sorry, not the old Bible, Old Testament. And I don't know. Like, is is there a something in the in the shift here, or is this just a demonstration of impulse and not rule following, and therefore no virtue? And this is enough examples to the angel become a devil to be like oh i i see the contradictions now i see that they're like paradoxical complicated or that this represent this god or representation of god or whatever it's extension of god is paradoxical contradictory thing that is not bound by rule but in fact is impulsive that's sufficient reason for me to be a devil is that or am i missing um the geocultural context here. I guess that's what I'm asking. I, I I don't know how to take that. I that that section. I guess.
0: Anyone want to try for an answer? There.
1: You go. Teach.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. So. Um, okay so in the book of Exodus um, Moses comes down from a mountain with ten commandments he sees um, the, the ten commandments having been written on stone by uh, God himself or their self rather by God theirself. and Moses sees the people worshipping a cow and, and having a party so he throws the uh, tablets down breaks them goes back up the mountain after kind of like a I believe he he gives a short speech kind of shaming them after they see him. They're like, oh, my God, it's Moses. We thought you were dead. So Moses goes back up the mountain, and he receives, uh, after talking with God again, he writes on stone the Ten Commandments and brings them down to the people. And so there's this notion with these Ten Commandments that effectively you have to do these things um, and abide by them. And for the most part, they're thou shall nots. Um, and that by abiding these, you're following um, a kind of sacred law. Just like we saw in the voice of the devil, right? All Bibles or sacred codes. Uh, the Ten Commandments are a sacred code in that sense. And so um, I'm not going to go through all ten of them, just for the sake of time. But to use a specific example, one of the commandments is thou shalt not bear witness, bear false witness, which effectively means thou shalt not lie, right? To bear false witness is to say about something you're familiar with, say about something you have some witness to, some testimony, uh, and tell it not like it is, right? And so uh, what the angel is saying here is, Jesus doesn't get rid of the Ten Commandments. Jesus says the Ten Commandments are what it's all about, right? Um, The quote being, Has not Jesus Christ given his sanction to the law of Ten Commandments? And sorry, the devil replies, um, showing all these examples of uh, Jesus breaking the Ten Commandments in a traditional sense, like the like the example of the woman getting stoned I gave. One of those other examples is, barefault witness when he omitted making a defense before Pilate. Instead of uh, giving some witness to his case and all that, right, like to, to say something, at least something true, he stays silent. In that way, right, like If we can't believe with this angel that the Ten Commandments work in this inviolable sense, and what's more, if they rely on our violation such that we need Jesus to to save us because he didn't break them, um, if if this devil is correct, and that's not the case, right? If Jesus' affirmation of the Ten Commandments is through his ability not only to interpret them uh, but to also have the virtue of thinking for himself. Um, if if we agree with the devil to this at some level, then we can't believe with the angel that this inviolable model works. Um, what's more, it opens up a lot of space for us, um, as we've said elsewhere. And so... Um, The cultural context and the the religious context is, in many ways, talking about how we not only derive our morality, but also how we relate. Um, It's always interesting that we use this word with sacred law or codes in that, right? And the way that it's tempting to say, Jesus abided by that constantly, never broke it, um, only to be met with the rebuttal well, what about all these times he did, <laughs> right? So if, if Jesus is the great person, as the angel and devil agree, if he is the great man, um, and he, he affirms this model of thinking for yourself or going so far as defining virtue and living this original um, life with this um, level of freedom of interpretation in that, and this ability to have dialogue with people, Cause all these instances come usually come with a level of teaching which i don't want to call teaching actually this level of its change um i hate to call it teaching because like that makes it sound like uh wisdom is something somebody like beyond you kind of passes down and i don't think that's it's exactly consistent with blake it's beyond you and sense of folly <laughs> right but um in that sense, you almost have like a, what Kuhn would call a paradigm shift, but um, it's it's a shift in the way we engage morality, engage the divine, and um, at least in a Christian sense, even go so far as to consider how to understand the character of Jesus.
3: And I suppose to top that off, uh, you know, talking about Imitatio Christi um, and uh, not experiencing Christ, but sort of regurgitating a preformed structure. um, Christ uh, says, you know, uh, look neither here nor there for the kingdom of God is within you, right? um so uh were the ten commandments even necessary like if you can if you can reach this authentic experience yourself then then what was the point of the ten commandments
1: right i think that echoes the very last sentence of the whole thing where he just says for everything that lives is holy i mean that that seems to summarize that the entire sort of perspective that it's like an imminent force in the universe. It's something that all of us possess. There's no, there's, there's not actually any hierarchy of knowledge of, of of any of these things. It's something that exists in all of us. And I think as we were saying before, it exists, um, you know, when he, w- w- sorry, what's the direct quote when he says um, yeah. The, the the worship of God is honoring these gifts and other men, each according to his genius, and loving the greatest men best. Those who envy or calumniate great men hate God, for there is no other God. So you know, rather than seeing it as a form of idolatry, this is giving me like five percent or nation of Islam vibes. But uh, you know, it's not. It's actually t- recognizing that there is n- no other God, but the, you know, the one that you see before you the being, the person who's, who's channeling these things. And you can partake in that, or you can, I guess, go down the wrong road according to Blake and see it as heretical and try to suppress it. But yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think you're definitely onto it. Right. And it it definitely challenges us to reconsider our relationship, not only with, um, um, with, with the sacred at any level because um, I think you're right like Blake opens up a lot of space to interpret for yourself, to live for yourself, to um, to have inspiration or what you might call an impulse and to let that inspiration not just be productive but also produce um, a level of inspiration for others for themselves, right? So that they can um, they can create with you, and you know, one of the reasons I want to point out this is not exactly a dialectic, is this is very dialogic. This is like I think, if anything, one of the major things Blake accomplishes here is allowing a dialogue to, to occur, especially in this fancy between angels and devils, right? Um, to allow the contraries this um, to to be in relation with one another, and for us to be able to interact with them to have that kind of round table. But you can also walk this out into society, right? Because there is, um, this is 1790, the French Revolution has already occurred, the American has occurred. Um, this could speak a lot to the way we try to engage law and morality in our society, the way we interact with the leaders and other social structures, and for instance, um, one law for the, the line in arts is oppression. If you have a society um, fertile with differences, right? And different people in that, different circumstances. To try and, I don't want to say one size fit all, but to impose a law over all that in negation of those um, circumstances, such that they're absent, right? Obviously, Blake could um, be seen here, I think, to be critiquing even that level in society. Alyosha, you have charts for days. I'm very impressed.
1: You mentioned Hans Kung, and I love Kung, so I just, I just wanted to share the what the paradigm shifts look like for anyone who's curious in the chat.
0: These are from Kuhn, are they?
1: I believe so. Are they adaptations of them? I mean, they're. I'll look for if I can find actual pictures from the books. But I have the Christianity one and the Islam one, and they're usually in the first few pages.
0: That's interesting. i only. I know he's really interested in the way science has these, but I didn't know he he ventured into religion.
1: We might be thinking of two different authors here because I know maybe we're pronouncing them in funny ways. But Hans Kuhn, the German uh, theologian, maybe he's adapting uh, the paradigm theory from someone else. But yeah.
0: Yep. I was thinking Thomas Kuhn. (laughs) So not quite the same guy.
1: Ignorance produces wonderful things, as Blake has taught us.
0: Oh, yeah. What is it? The, the road to wisdom is paved by the, ooh, the road to wisdom is paved by the palace of wisdom is paved by the road of its us, I think it is. And in this case, an excess of mispronunciation or a mishearing on my part. <laughs> um, so with that. Um. Right at the end of this discussion, I do want to thank you all for bearing with us through the three weeks of Blake. I know this has been um, a challenging test and certainly one that can be deceptively simple. Uh, I think part of the challenge of Blake is sometimes he appears so clear. um, And you get this with a lot of um, these kind of prophetic thinkers. uh, He appears so clear that it's very easy to not... um, to feel like you're you're sort of like you're getting the point without being able to like kind of like say it um, without like repeating what he says right like well no he says energy is infinite delight there's internal delight and that's that's what it is damn it Um, but right like hopefully what we've done is helped um, help develop a sense of saying like right but what he means by eternal delight is over here and you can see how it's getting developed and you know, I think this is kind of the, the idea he's getting at, by this um this phrase. So um, I'll leave it to you guys. Closing thoughts on William Blake, and the marriage of heaven and hell. Okay, no comments. I'll simply say that, um, and to kind of set up our roundtable. One thing I've really enjoyed about this text is not only the relationship of poetic genius with um. Uh, originality and, and creativity, and uh, a sense of community that involves inspiring others, um, and to to inspire others, not simply to rearrange uh, what you've done or what you've said, but to you know uh, to develop their own creativity and, and to create and to have that dialogue with you about um, as a community of what you what you all are working on, whether it's. Um, your own project or your your larger project with others. But I'll say one thing I really appreciate in this text too is its commitment to um, discussing wisdom, which I think in this text has probably been the most explicit we've actually seen an author talking about wisdom by, by name.
1: Well, I say you've clearly made me a fan. I really appreciate being exposed to this kind of stuff because I wouldn't have been exposed to it otherwise. And I think it also, I think it just goes to show we always like tend to think of, we all have our stereotypes of different eras, you know. And it's great to see content, stuff from this era, uh, when you would kind of think that these kinds of perspectives were too radical or too heretical to even be expressed, to actually have a really rich tradition to see that he was so prolific um to see you know so many of the writers and the theorists we've been reading there's so many traces even indirectly because i think they they all have s- similar projects in a sense of being critical about the world around us to see that there's traces of that in this it's, it's all really great and i just it makes me want to read more of his stuff so yeah i've really enjoyed it
0: Well, thank you for that. Um, right, Alyosha for week four of Blake no we'll have some mercy. <laughs> we'll give it a give him a break before we consider coming back um perhaps reading a different text. but would anyone else like to to give us some closing words on Blake? back out the Craig And we will call this um, now on the end of today's session, uh, but also the end of our discussion on the marriage of heaven and hell. And um, I'm really thankful for you all being a part of it. It's been really lovely learning with you and um, interpreting this text with you.
1: I recommend to people that uh, if you if we all we've all been having chats about what the next text is going to be um i don't know jack maybe you can remind us like how uh well not how so we have a crypt pad up it's basically like google docs you can find the link in the pinned messages on the literature channel but um i guess we, maybe we have to pick a day by which we decide what the next text is going to be i offered to work on putting together some of the syllabi, I guess as we call them, on the pad uh, this weekend. So tomorrow I can devote some time to that. If anyone else is around, I would love to just get hop into a voice chat and have some discussions while we you know, make it look nice. Um, so yeah, so have a think about other texts you want to read and maybe look at the existing suggestions. Um, password to get into the file is Aleph, A-L-E-P-H.
0: You can't give them the password on the voice chat. Now everyone will know.
1: Hey man, this is a this is an open community, man.
0: Well, in spirit of that, uh, Alyosha is correct. We're we're taking literature and opening up. Um, I like to think it's always been an open community, but we're opening up the, the the processes behind the scenes. We're opening up the textual selection and um, any involvement you want to have with this this group, whether you want to lead a session. Um, whether you want to read a particular test and you think, like, uh, you think that's where it's at and that it would be good for the group to move their nest. This is all being opened up on the literature channel. And um, as Alyosha said, we are developing a crypt pad and doing our sort of textual selection and organizing thoughts there um, in tandem with some server changes. Um, that will happen later on, uh, hopefully this month, if not by, certainly mid-July, I would think, depending on uh, when we can come to agreement about how to, how to deploy it all. Uh, but with that, feel free to stop by in the literature channel. And um, when I say get involved uh, with this, I, I encourage you to get involved. But know that you can be involved, because as much as you are comfortable, whether that's taking on one of these sessions to leave for yourself, just voting on a test with everybody, showing up to the sessions, um, you know, whatever you're comfortable with, the space is open for that.